Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. We're all good at some things, but nobody's good at everything. And that's where I think I screwed up was just thinking that I could manage a thousand unit portfolio without robust systems in place and really not understanding deeply asset management because it is different than just being a property manager over a couple of apartments. Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed and I'm here with Jennings Smith. Jennings is joining us from Somerville, South Carolina. He's the co-founder of two companies. Live Oak Capital is an investment firm focused on multifamily. And My First Million in Multifamily builds networks that help people close multifamily deals. In his current portfolio, he's a GP of 1,000 apartments and 500 self-storage units. Jennings, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Hey, Slocum. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So yeah, my cousin Yaden and I are business partners and we own collectively about 48% of our portfolio. So nice. we were talking before the show, we were able to achieve that higher equity by doing the Burr style type of apartment buying. But I started as a contractor. At 19, I got my builder's license and started 
building track homes and renovating bathrooms and kitchens and got burned out on that after about 16 years. But I had started buying trailers and a few rental homes and thought, this works. I'm building wealth, but it's really slow. I got to save up 20 grand to buy a rental home and trailers. It was money, but it wasn't significant money. I'm playing in $15,000 mobile homes and I wanted to play bigger games. So I bought Michael Blank's course, The Ultimate Apartment Buyer Guide for a thousand bucks online. And I learned how to syndicate and I syndicated my first 12 unit deal in 2019. So the very beginning, January, February of 2019, we closed that. And then I went to a conference, learned more about the Burr model and how to do that and just kept closing deals and met more people there, raised more capital and went from there to where we are now, which is about a thousand doors and 500 self-storage units. So it's been a, a wild ride. Now I'm completely out of construction, sold my company and do this full time. Cool. There was a lot in there, Jennings, to pick from. As a podcast interviewer, the first place my mind goes, though, as an apartment owner operator myself, the thing that stood out to me the most in there was that you syndicated a 12 unit from 2019 and you're from South Carolina. So I'm imagining those were not million dollar units. Most people, I think, will make the same assumption that I'm making tell me I'm wrong here, please. A 12 unit in Somerville, South Carolina is too small to syndicate, isn't it? Okay. When I say syndicate, I mean, I raised the money for it. So I guess it wasn't a traditional syndication. My next one, which was a 19 unit, it was a 506B of 750,000. And we did syndicate that. But the first one we bought it in North Carolina and it was only $250,000. I got seller finance. So the seller loaned me 70% because it was 21,000 a door with seller financing. And it was in good shape. It really was. It was in a little town, Williamston, North Carolina, 5,000 people. And I somehow convinced the guys like, Hey, it's not going to make money. I'm not gonna be able to get a loan. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get the loan probably anyways at that point. So he agreed if I brought 30% down, then he would do it. So I drew up a proposal and I found an investor to give me the down payment plus about 20 grand in carrying costs, slush fund, whatever, and gave him 40% of the deal. And I kept 60% of the deal. His first question was, why don't I get 60% of the deal? I'm bringing the money. And I pushed back and said, well, money's everywhere. These really good deals are hard to find. So he's like, all right, well, whatever, I'll do it. So he did it. And it was a pretty cool little light value add. We got rid of the trash. The guy was paying for a dumpster, but he was also paying for trash can service in his county taxes. Hmm. So we got rid of the dumpster, got the cans out there, and then he wasn't charging for water. And in this little town, they have this reverse osmosis and water was 80 bucks per unit per month for one bedroom apartments. So I started billing the tenants for the water and I don't even think I raised rents. I just did that. And 18 months later, I sold it for $415,000. So made money, investor made money. He got his money back. And the guy that bought it from me, he has since made money. I've stayed in contact with him and he's doing well with the property. So it was a really cool first deal. It was just big enough to get my feet wet, but give me the confidence to close the 19 unit, which was pretty easy. We only had to raise 250 grand. We closed a 64 unit in Charleston 
And that was about a $5 million deal all in. And we had to raise $1.2 million for that. So that was a bigger stressor. <laughs> Jennings, there's an interesting point of comparison here between your investing and mine. My portfolio is smaller than yours. And I haven't gotten into syndication yet. One of the reasons I haven't is because I'm seeing so much value and opportunity in the joint ventures that you're discussing, where I'm looking for these opportunities off market. How can I get in front of the seller without a broker between us? Yep. And how can I create Burr style deals where the force appreciation is significant enough that a cash out refi gets us back all of our starting capital? One of the reasons I'm hesitating to move into apartment syndication is because I have people in my sphere already who are interested in partnering with me on those kinds of deals where they bring most or all of the capital. If I'm bringing some capital, my ownership percentage is proportionally much greater than the capital that I'm bringing because I'm bringing a deal that has the potential of the deals that you were discussing, that first 12 unit. and. What I'm seeing is that the deals are smaller, but there are a couple of things going on here. One is I'm in a position to take a larger ownership stake, structuring a 12 unit with a partner who is on paper as active in the deal as I am and has as much decision-making power based on ownership percentage. Where I'm struggling to get into syndication is twofold. One is that I can do really well on these smaller deals where I end up with 25, 50% ownership, bringing little or no money to the deal to get that ownership because of the value that I'm creating for my partner with the force appreciation potential. Also, the syndication space, there are a lot more investors in it now and since 2019 than there were seven years ago. I have a lot less competition in the smaller space, smaller unit count, but also it's much easier to get direct to seller south of 40 units than north of 40 units, at least in Cincinnati. So I imagine there was a time when you were facing all of this with your own decision-making as well, and you decided that syndication was the right path for you. Talk to me directly, Jennings, and our best ever listeners will hopefully gain something from the conversation between you and me. Talk to me directly. What is it that I'm missing about syndication that makes it a great opportunity, possibly a better use of my time and talents than these JV deals? And why is it that you decided to make that shift into syndication? Great question. And I think there's two answers. One, most people assume that to do a syndication, you have to give away 70, 80% of the equity to the money. Number one, that isn't true. You can structure syndication however you want. Most of my syndications are structured 70-30 with 70 towards the GP, 30 towards the money. So you don't have to necessarily give away that much equity. But secondly, and more importantly, the reason that I decided to go the syndication route is because of the legal implications of it. And I wanted to be in control and I wanted to be in charge. And I mean, things inevitably go shaky. If you're going to keep doing deal after deal after deal and taking on more and more and more JV partners, eventually probably something's going to go wrong. You're going to disagree with one of the JV partners. They're going to want to sell. He's going to want to refinance. He's going to get divorced. She's going to sue you, whatever. It happens in business. And we know this. So 
when you're in a syndication and you're the GP with LPs bringing the money, you still have those risks with your GP partners, but you don't have the same risks with the LP partners because of the structure of it, where they're not active operators and you've done it by the book, you've registered it with a 506B or C with the SEC, and you've gone that route. So they really don't have much more control over you than you saying, hey, I bought Coca-Cola stock, so I feel like I should be able to tell Coke when they should sell their company or buy their materials or sell in different countries or whatever. Coke doesn't care. And the syndication framework is super strong towards the GP. As an LP, I think it's more advantageous to probably be in a JV than it is to be in a syndication. But if you're talking strictly legal strength and the avoidance of lawsuits and having more decision-making power unilaterally over what you're going to do with your property, you want to be the GP syndicator. So that was sort of my thought was deals under a million bucks. Yeah, we can mess around. We can skirt the issue. but Above a million, really, we are the active operators. The money people are not. They're not making these decisions. And if something goes wrong, they could go to the powers that be and say, this doesn't fly because I was supposed to be a JV. He didn't consult me and he ran this property into the ground and I want to sue him. So the liability protection, that makes sense to me naturally. We have a very sophisticated listener base, Jennings. So I don't think anyone is surprised necessarily by what you're saying there. What is surprising to me is that you're doing 70-30 splits with 70% to the GP side. Tell us a little bit more about why you're structuring deals that way. What other terms are there in there? Is there still a preferred return on a targeted IRR? And why is it that it's a good idea for a passive investor who doesn't have the power of of an active JV to go into a deal for 30%. Right. So it boils down to your opportunity. So let's say I came to you, Slocum, and I said, I want you to invest in one of my deals. It's a great deal. Maybe we're even going to be JVs. And I want you to be a passive investor in my deal. More likely than not, you're not going to invest in my deal because you're going to want that $100,000 set aside for your next deal or whatever you may need because you have opportunity at your fingertips. And also, you know about syndication, you know about other apartment investors, you have a ton of deals at your disposal, and you personally know how to do this and make money without putting any cash in. You can just do it with your skills. So you're not going to invest in my deal. That doesn't mean that nobody's going to invest in my deal, though. So I think that if I'm taking a 70-30 deal to a pool of seasoned LPs that are in all these other syndication deals, and that's what they're used to is that 70-30 split, I am going to have a tough row to hoe just because of the mental shift of that. Now, I would argue that you can still get LPs 15 to 22% IRR return on that split if it's a good enough deal. So what does it matter, right? It's just semantics. Or maybe I have less fees associated with my deals than the other syndicators. I mean, I have a friend that he did a deal where it was 100% to the LP, 0% to the GP, and there was $500,000 in upfront fees at closing. He's getting his piece of the pie. He's just structuring it in a way that seems psychologically more advantageous to the investor. 
And I feel like a lot of these quote unquote skinny deals where it's 20%, 30% to the GP, they have heftier acquisition fees. They've got construction management fees. They've got capital event fees. They've got asset management fees. And maybe they've got hurdles where it's only 70-30 up to this and then it changes to 50-50. They know what they need to make and they're structuring it in the way to make it profitable. Because if you just did an 80-20 split with no fees, that deal is, is really not worth the syndicator's time. So if you're an LP looking at those deals, I think you really got to dig into the fine print of how everybody is getting paid. So the way that I have done that successfully with 20% or 30% to the LP is we've paid a heavier preferred return. So we've done a 10% preferred return. And then we've done it only on deals that we can get them their money back in 18 to 24 months. So it's a really, really short timeline, whether that's selling the deal or refinancing the deal. And if we're selling the deal in less than two years and we're paying a 10 pref while the money's in the deal, and then they're getting their cut of the profits, then they're making 20 plus percent IRR. Most people will take that deal. And if they won't, I'll find somebody else that will. It's kind of like widening the net. And if my net is only going to multifamily conferences, trying to market only to LPs, then yeah, I'm going to get a lot of people that don't understand my model, don't want to do that, or they want more equity, whatever. But I would also venture that when you're getting into a deal where the GPs only own 20, 30%, What happens when something goes wrong? They don't have very much equity to dilute. They don't have very much wiggle room to make you whole versus something like mine. It's like, hey, it's that good of a deal that we are able to dilute. We can sell another share. We have equity left to make the deal still work. But it's just a function of return. You look at pref equity firms, right? They'll go in mezzanine position at 10 to 14% interest up to 90% LTV or LTC and they're getting no equity. So if I'm paying a 10 pref, and then you're getting another 10 to 12% on the back end, if I screw up, you're making the first 10% on that deal. So I have to put more risk on myself. I couldn't just say no preferred return. I get 70%, you get 30. I wouldn't make that sale. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. 
They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Jennings, your explanations are so content packed that I have to let some of the great information you're sharing go in order to drill into a few specific things. The thing I want to drill into here is another thing I have not yet found for myself in apartment syndication is that I'm all about alignment of interest. And when I was taking apartment syndication very seriously in 2019, early 2020, thinking about getting into it myself, that being the next vehicle for my investing, I didn't like the idea of acquisition fees, asset management fees, and those things that you're naming. Because what I wanted for myself was the opportunity to earn and profit in proportion to my results and not in proportion to my activities. So what you're saying about taking a larger equity percentage, but not having the fees along the way, that resonates with me. But it also means that if you've stripped the typical fees out of a syndication comp plan or a syndication equity split, there's a lot of meat left on the bone for that smaller equity percentage the LPs are getting because there's more profit left in the deal literally by the fact that there are fewer expenses and transaction costs. Yeah, there's going to be a demographic of people that look at two deals that are both 20% IRR, one's 70% to the investor, one's 30%. And they're not going to like it. But does it logically make sense when you're like, oh, wow, these guys, they're not getting fees. They're incentivized to get my money back as soon as possible because they're paying this heavy pref and they have 70% of the equity so they can sell more shares if they have to. They can dilute their equity if they have to. They have multiple exit strategies versus the, wow, these guys are paying top dollar. And the only way that they could get me an 18 to 20% return was to give away 80% of the deal because we're buying in Austin, Texas, and we're paying $200,000 a door. And you're buying a deal that's brokered that has 200 other LOIs, right? And you had to outbid those other 200 buyers. So what's more risky? There's definitely a demographic that are attracted to my deals and that pitch. So the first couple deals, I did not even do an acquisition fee. Now we do do an acquisition fee because it is a lot of work to get these deals closed and all the legal work and paperwork and all that. But yeah, the bad way about my strategy is you don't get paid for two years. I don't make a cent. So it kind of sucks. And I would say if you're trying to go into multifamily full time as a syndicator and make a career out of it, the other way is a viable way. And I don't fault that. I used to be like, oh, that's not as good, but there's all different types. The world needs all different types. And if you have no preferred return and you're giving away more equity and you have these asset management fees, then it is easier for you to transition into multifamily full-time faster because you're getting cash flow. And when you're dispersing to the investors 70%, well, at least you're getting 30%. Whereas when I have this pref 
anvil hanging over my head. I'm not dispersing cash to myself because I'm worried about being able to pay that preferred return. That makes a lot of sense. A solid preferred return is going to be difficult to deliver if, for the sake of simple math, if your LPs have 25% of the equity and eight pref, then you have to be delivering a 32% cash on cash return for that eight pref to be satisfied in just 25% of the ownership. Right. So all of the cash flow at the beginning, even though they have a lower equity split, it's all going to them to meet that pref. Yes. And then, like you said, you are made whole on your equity with the liquidity events in the end, ideally with the sale when you can make back all of the returns on your equity. That makes a lot of sense. Jennings, help me work through this pitch here. Again, I know there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode for our listeners. Nothing is actually being offered. This is a purely hypothetical exercise. But let's say, Jennings, that I want to syndicate on a model closer to yours. And I want to explain to investors who are familiar already with the typical syndication model where the typical model where LPs get the lion's share of the equity. When I create a model where I retain a greater equity percentage while delivering on a PREF and and a targeted IRR without fees, it is creating that alignment of interest in that I'm not getting paid for activity as much as I'm getting paid for results. Profitability cash flow is left in the deal by the fact that I'm taking less money off the table in the meantime in terms of fees that effectively will be expenses that reduce cash flow. I'm still planning to deliver on a similar preferred return and targeted IRR, but also without having the fees and retaining a higher equity percentage, if things go south, whether they be microeconomic, macroeconomic, my fault or not. I am in a better position to make my investors whole because I have more of the deal from which to make them whole. I'm not trying to make 70% whole with my 30. I'm trying to make 30% whole with my 70. It seems like that's a solid way for limited partners to know that they are safe in an investment while getting a preferred return and a targeted IRR they're interested in. Am I missing something here? No, I think you're nailing it. And that's the crux of it. Let's say we miss our projections. Well, we've got 70% of the sale profits to push towards making up that 10% preferred return if we've missed that. For example, our bigger deal in Goose Creek, the first one we did, when we refinanced, we were only able to get 92% of the capital back out. For Burr investors, that's a frustrating number, but for people who don't do what we do, that's really exciting. I get where you're coming from. Yeah, so now all cash flow has to be deferred to the investor and the 10% clock is still ticking on that last little bit of money. So I still haven't gotten paid anything on that deal. Yeah, It'll work out for me long-term and the investors got their checks and they got most of their money back and now we're eating away at that last little bit. And then sometimes it works phenomenally. I'm going to tell you an example. We bought this heavy value ad in Oklahoma, 208 units in Tulsa for $5.5 million. And we put 2.5 million into the renovation. So it was a $2.4 million raise, 24 shares, 100,000 a piece. And 
we renovated it. We filled it up. It took us about two years to get it done. And we just refinanced it with Freddie Mac and got non-recourse debt, 10 year term, four and a quarter interest rate. Cause we locked nice. it a while back and it appraised for 13.9 million. And the bank gave us 9.45 million. And our basis was 8.1, not our basis, but our all in costs with all the investors money, yeah. the renovations, carrying costs, everything. So we returned all of that. We set aside eight or 900,000 in bankroll for future renovations. We got to replace some roofs and some other stuff. And then we distributed 250,000 of those refi proceeds. And that's cool. But now the building is cash flowing $30,000 a month after debt service. So the GPs get 80% of that for forever, as long as we want. And then investors aren't mad because they got 10% of their money while it was in the deal. They got their money back. They got 20% above and beyond refi proceeds. They're getting 20% of the cash flow forever with no risk on the deal. And they're going to get 20% on the sale. And they didn't have to sign on any debt. They took on no risk other than their capital. Now they have zero risk in the deal. And that's another advantage of the syndication model versus the JV model is if anyone's above 20, 25%, the bank wants them on that loan. And you don't really run into that issue with syndication because their LPs are a different share class. So even though collectively they maybe own more than 25%, they're taking on no debt or risk or liability whatsoever. And it's a lot easier to get 24 people to give you a hundred grand than two to three people to give you a million dollars. And how many of those times can that person give you the million dollars? That well runs dry, I think, at some point instead of getting it $50,000, $100,000 at a time, and you don't have a tail that can wag the dog, right? If somebody's bringing a million bucks to your deal, and there isn't a term that he likes, and it's a week before closing, and your money's gone hard, and you're about to lose $200,000, you're probably going to acquiesce to his terms versus an investor that's giving you fifty grand or hundred grand. All right, we'll, we'll replace you. We'll figure out a way to replace you. You're out of the deal. You're not telling me what to do. You're not telling me how to run my deal. I'm in charge. I love that about the syndication model. And I always encourage people that I mentor in our deal room, if you can help it, don't let somebody be bringing this massive chunk of money because more often than not, it's a horror story and it doesn't work out because that person starts to demand more or they want to change the terms of the deal. That makes a lot of sense. I've gained a lot of value from this episode. I hope our best ever listeners have as well. Jennings, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? All right. Let's bring it on. Awesome. What is the best ever book you've recently read? I'm going to have to go with Flip the Script by Oren Claff. It's super great for the mindset piece and the psychology with talking to investors, talking with brokers, off-market sellers, and it's just creating that your idea is their idea and understanding how our brains wire things together and taking advantage of that to accomplish goals. Great book. And he weaves all these different stories together in a really compelling way that's easy to remember. Nice. What is your best ever way to give back? First and foremost, I'm involved with my church, giving money, and I'm on the vestry, which is like the leadership team of the church. So I love that, involved in that. And then my deal room. So out of my Facebook group, it's got 24,000 people in it. I love to give value in there. And then I have a group of about 330 people that are my mentees because people kept asking me 
hey, how do I do this? Can I pick your brain? And I wanted to have an organized fashion for people that were serious, that wanted to jump from rental homes into multifamily and really start doing bigger deals and doing bigger things. I wanted to have a, a track record of accountability. And it is a lot of work. I was pretty worried about doing it. I didn't want to be seen as like a scammer or a guru or another guy out there shilling a product. But I realized that I can help a lot of people and I can change people's lives where they're stuck in a career that they hate. They're going to a nine to five job that they don't like. They're not pursuing their goals. They have no money in the bank. They've got no net worth to speak of and they don't see a way out. And they know real estate is a great vehicle that I can help them. I can show them what I've done in three, four years that is going to provide for my retirement's done. My retirement's done many, many times over just by working hard for three or four years and learning this stuff. And I love that. And I love hearing their stories of them closing their first deal. Cause I know once they close one deal, they can close as many deals as they want. Jennings, we're going to make this the last question of the lightning round. You've given a lot of advice already. We usually ask for advice, but what is the biggest mistake you've made as a commercial real estate investor thus far? And what is the best ever lesson that has resulted from it? Hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes I've made is thinking that I know more than I know and thinking that I'm too good at something that I'm not really skilled at. So I'm pretty much going into asset management. And as I've grown, no big deal. First couple of deals. And I got really good at raising money and closing deals and finding deals and, and underwriting and due diligence. But as you grow, there's a lot more to manage with tons of investors and tax forms and K-1s and different property management and construction projects all spread across different states and really not running those properties and operating them as well as I could and forging ahead to the next deal instead of really focusing on, let me get everything in alignment, get my system set up. So that was a big lesson. And then the lesson I learned from it was I hired an outside consultant, an asset management guy who took a deep dive into my portfolio, uncovered a lot of things, issues, stuff that we weren't doing as well as we could and helped us make some adaptions and changes and made the portfolio a lot more profitable. So we're all good at some things, but nobody's good at everything. And that's where I think I screwed up was just thinking that I could manage a thousand unit portfolio without robust systems in place and really not understanding deeply asset management because it is different than just being a property manager over a couple apartments when you get to scale. And it was overwhelming to think about how am I going to do 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 doors? I knew I could close them, but successfully running them without wanting to drive off a cliff is a different problem. That's really valuable insight. Jennings, thank you. Where can people get in touch with you? The best place is jump in my Facebook group, My First Million in Multifamily. When you join, we'll send you some free resources. We'll send you our deal analyzer. We'll send you a sample pitch deck. I'll send you how I raised my first $90,000 to close my first deal at 12 unit that we talked about. And there's a lot of good people in there. There's a lot of deals flying around and it's a gateway into our deal room. The deal room is pretty much reserved for people that already have rental property. I need you to have already have some experience, whether owning your own business or rental property, but it's a good way to get more insight and exposure into multifamily. And Instagram, Jenny Swaffer Smith Jr. or Facebook, Jenny Smith. 
shoot me a message. I will respond. I'd love connecting with people and I'd love to help you out and your listeners any way I can. Jennings, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, I know I have, please do subscribe to this show. Leave us a five-star review and tell a friend who's interested in real estate investing or already active and looking at syndication. Tell them about this episode, share it with them so that we can add value to them as well. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thank you.